As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. If you're lucky enough to be in the 30% that transfers wealth to the next generation, to that third generation, 70% of them lose it as well. So you only have about 9% of families that are able to transfer wealth beyond their grandkids. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with $1 million to $100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead, so they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template 
should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Noah Rosenfarb. How you doing, Noah? Awesome. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to hear that and glad that you're here. A little bit about Noah. He's a full-time real estate investor. He has 20 years of real estate experience. His portfolio consists of 3,500 plus doors, plus half a million square feet of retail and office based in Parkland, Florida. So with that being said, Noah, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. So I'm a third generation CPA and I started my career in accounting, much like my father and grandfather, but I broke away and decided to start a family office. And that family office business has evolved over time where we serve really successful entrepreneurs in everything that they need to have it all in their lives. So we focus on their financial success, of course, but also in their personal success and making sure they're living the life that they want. And a large part of that is creating predictable income. So we started investing with our clients in multifamily assets and other asset classes over 20 years ago. And it's just been a great run and it's a lot of fun. The real estate portion of my business is a substantial part of our business portfolio and expecting it to continue to grow. To start a family office, do you have to have money? The way I started was I was really a wealth advisor and kind of transitioned to a family office for affluent divorced women. That was the niche that I had. So I was neither divorced nor a woman, but I built that family (laughs) office. I sold it in 2014 to another registered investment advisory firm. And then I focused on creating a family office for successful entrepreneurs because they were more like me. So I'm an entrepreneur. I own other business interests. I have a large real estate portfolio. And I was really looking for what I needed for my family. I wanted somebody to help me with creating passive income and managing all my finances, but also making sure that I'm training my kids who are now 13 and 10 about money and our family business and what's important. And then in philanthropy, we have a lot of activities that my wife and I do both with time and money and orchestrating that. So I wanted to build the team around me. And then it just made sense when friends were coming to me that I had a place to bring them as well. And so now we've got about 50 families of entrepreneurs that we're serving and we invest together in real estate. We invest together in private debt. We invest together in royalties and of course in stocks and bonds as well. Mm -hmm. So many interesting ways to take this conversation, and I hope we can get to a lot of them. First off, affluent divorced women, that was your focus. Why was that your focus? So prior to that, when I was a practicing accountant, one of my areas of expertise was testifying in divorce court about how much money people made and how much their businesses were worth. And what I noticed was oftentimes in New York and New Jersey, which was where our practice was based, We had about $200 million a year worth of assets that were changing hands between the control of one spouse to the control of the other spouse. 
and the clients that I was working with that were predominantly homemakers whose husbands were hedge fund managers and entrepreneurs in Manhattan, they really didn't know what they were supposed to do with this newfound responsibility of managing their assets. And because I had all of the expertise and experience to help them through their divorce litigation, I recognized that there was really an opportunity post-divorce to start managing all the financial aspects of their life that they used to rely on their husband for taxes and bill payments and estate planning and insurance and investments. And so I saw that opportunity and I left the accounting firm to build a family office geared towards affluent divorced women. And what are some core things that you were teaching new client right out of the gate that perhaps they weren't aware of? And you mentioned something just now, but if you can elaborate on that, I'd, I'd love to learn yeah, more. Yeah, I think the hardest transition and the reason that we tie my experience from working with these affluent divorced women to my core focus in entrepreneurial families, especially around the time when they sell their companies, is that transition is very similar. You go from having a network of people and a whole system in place where things are very reliable. Your income seems reliable because it's coming from your company or it's coming from your spouse. Your network of friends and family is pretty solid because it's either based around your business or it's based around the relationship that you have with the core family that you built. And then once that fractures, whether it's because you've sold your business or because you've gotten divorced, you need to recreate that predictable income stream. And that's really scary. So People like to think that when you sell a business and 25 million hits your bank account, that you go out and celebrate that night. Most people can't sleep that night. And it's not because they're excited. It's because they're terrified. They don't know what to do. And so we've developed that expertise of helping coach people and train them and educate them about what they could do with cash and how to redeploy it to create predictable income so that they can focus their attention on the other areas of life that are often more important to them, whether it's supporting noble causes or creating family bonds that are unbreakable, whatever it is that becomes important to that entrepreneurial family or that homemaker, whatever it is, we want them to focus on what's most important to them. And usually it's not figuring out how to create predictable passive income. Going along the lines of the personal success aspect of things that you currently help your clients with, the successful entrepreneurs, you just mentioned creating family bonds that are unbreakable. What is your advice for affluent parents? You're a parent. You got a couple kids, you said. So what's your advice to your clients when they ask you, okay, Noah, I want to give my kids more than what I had growing up, but I don't want to spoil them. How should I approach this? What are the best practices based off of what you've seen other clients do? What is your answer to that? Yeah, it's all becomes partly age appropriate, partly culturally appropriate, and partially where you are environmentally. So families that live in affluent neighborhoods and send their kids to private schools where other children have vacation homes and spend summers in Europe and travel in private jets, what's expected or reasonable in that environment is totally different than entrepreneurs that live in rural or suburban areas that aren't affluent and they're driving their pickup truck and nobody knows they have 20 million bucks. Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of match the environment with the expectations of how to educate children, then we also have to look at a family's core values. 
and understanding what's important to that family. Why is it that they want to create wealth? Why is it that they're driven to go out and create more, to buy more, to do more, to succeed more? And usually what we find out when you start having those conversations is that there's often part of someone's childhood that's driving them to behave in a way that wants them to accumulate wealth or that's often kind of the fear-based that some people grew mm-hmm. up with, which was kind of my situation. I grew up with a single mom that struggled to put food on the table and never really had enough money for us to do the fun things in life. And on the contrary, my father, who was a practicing accountant, when we'd go spend a weekend with him, if it was a rainy day, we'd go bowling in the morning and go to the movies at night and go <laughs> out to dinner. And all of a sudden, just as a nine-year-old kid, I started to realize that having money meant having choices and that I wanted to have those choices in my life. So mm. that drove me in a certain direction. For other families, it's really their own sense of higher purpose and the noble causes that they want to support, and they want to give back to a certain area or a certain community, and that's what's driving them. So it's understanding what's motivating the family. What's the story behind it? How do we share those stories? How do we share those values? And then what are the systems and processes we put in place to make sure that the family can act accordingly. And what I like to say is that when families make gifts to their children, they want to be able to do it with an open heart and also with the expectation that their child's going to make them proud with how they use that gift. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately for a lot of affluent families, they start transitioning wealth to their children because their accountants and lawyers tell them it's efficient and they can escape taxation. And unfortunately, that's really a terrible motivator that creates really poor outcomes. It makes sense. I just personally love the approach that you took. You didn't have a direct answer because it's specific to the family and their situation based off of, as you said, age, culture, where you are environmentally. What do you mean by that, where you are environmentally, by the way? Like I said, if your kids are going to a private school and their friends fly in their own plane, oh, got it, you know, got like it. I'm here okay. in, in South Florida, there are a handful of private schools here where it's not uncommon for parents to own a private island in the Bahamas or to have a hundred foot yacht or to fly on their own private planes. So if your children are in that environment, what's expected of them and what's expected of the parents is very different than when your kids are in a public school environment with kids of all socioeconomic backgrounds. And maybe even getting an iPhone in fourth grade might be seen as somewhat flaunting your wealth. Mm -hmm. I get it. Okay. I was taking environmentally literally, which I shouldn't have. (laughs) All right. So I would love to learn just a couple tactical things that you've seen that have been helpful or with raising kids and gifting them money or not gifting them money. So if you can just pick a family, a situation, obviously we're not looking for names, but just a couple tactical things that families that you've worked with have done that have worked for them. It might not work for everyone listening who have kids and are affluent, but just a couple tactics. I'd say one thing that I've done with my children based on the education and training that I've had is I leave them responsible for as many expenses as I feel confident that they can make comfortably. So for example, when my son has to buy sneakers, we pay $60 and he pays whatever over that he wants. 
And that just makes him decide if he wants to spend $150 on sneakers, then $90 has to come out of his savings. If he wants to get sneakers for 60 bucks, it doesn't cost him a thing. That's a pretty simple way to help children start developing money habits where they have to value a dollar. Another example might be talking with your children specifically about your family and your family dynamics and your family goals. So my family does a retreat every year with a professional facilitator that comes in and helps us identify what are the strengths and weaknesses in our family? What are the opportunities and threats? How do we collaborate together to improve our family dynamics and make sure that we're growing together as a family instead of growing apart? I encourage that for most families as well, especially when the wealth is obvious then there becomes a different set of expectations than when the wealth is hidden. Mm -hmm. And I think when wealth is hidden, it often also leads to unintended outcomes because mom and dad hold on to their wealth well into their 80s or 90s and until they die. And then a pile of money gets left behind for their kids without ever having the responsibility, with ever having any insights from mom and dad as to what they wanted to do with it. And that's what's led to this description of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That <laughs> proverb exists in China. They call it rice paddy to rice paddy. In Holland, they call it clogs to clogs. So this is a unique feature of humans is that without the training and education of what it took to create the wealth, it's going to disappear. And just for anyone who wasn't following along, it's first generation makes it, second grows it, third loses it. Is that basically it? The second kind of spends it, and by the time spends you get it. to the third, it's gone. Yeah. Oh, I was giving the second generation too much credit. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, the statistics are that 70% of people that inherit money spend it all, and that happens for the second generation. So if you're lucky enough to be in the 30% that transfers wealth to the next generation, to that third generation, 70% of them lose it as well. So you only have about 9% of families that are able to transfer wealth beyond their grandkids. Family retreat, talking about a family dynamic and having a facilitator, what would you say? Less than one-tenth of a percent of Americans do that? <laughs> I've, never, oh, yeah. I mean, I've never heard of that before. It's very rare, but in my business, we use the entrepreneurial operating system, which is written about in a book called Traction, invented by Gino Wickman. Some people use other similar systems like Rockefeller Habits, which was created by Vern Harnish. But all of these systems for business process and business process improvement are all designed around having a plan and having a strategic plan. And early in my career, I started actually in my college fraternity by developing a strategic plan for our fraternity when I was our fraternity president. And that led to us having the largest house on campus. And we implemented the plan that we created. And when I graduated and got into the working world, I started helping small businesses create and implement their own strategic plans. I was the professional outside facilitator. And I helped these companies scale and go from 10 million to however many million and have big exits. And I did it in our accounting firm. I helped my dad grow his firm from two and a half million to 15 million before he sold it. And the key to that process was having this map of knowing where you are now and where you want to be and how you're going to get there. And oftentimes families fail to operate on that same type of professional level. And for the families that we counsel, their family business of just running their family money, that's a bigger business 
than 96% of the companies in America because only 4% of businesses in America ever get over a million in revenue. And when you think about these affluent families that we deal with, they all have a million dollars of revenue coming in to their family. So that family business happens to be quite significant and they need a plan for what are they going to do with that? How are they going to grow it? And a lot of that is designed around the family dynamics because if mom and dad aren't really clear about how they want their wealth to impact their lifestyle and to impact the legacy they're creating, the default setting is not a good one. I love this conversation. I I could talk to you about this a whole lot, but I know some listeners are also interested in your over 3,500 unit portfolio of multifamily. So let's talk about that. I'm on your LinkedIn profile. I see it it says, we bought our first two family home in 2000 and have slowly built our our portfolio to over 3,500 units. Okay. Wow. First off, props to you for that. Those 3,500 units that we're referring to, is that you're the only general partner on those or are you general partner on all of them or are you also considering limited partners roles yeah, in that? I'm going to give you two units? answers to that question. One's the interesting answer. The non-interesting answer is I'm engaged in the operations and management of those 3,500 units, but we have LP investors in all those deals. So this year we'll add 1,100 doors. I control all the equity. I have an operating partner that runs the day-to-day operations But from a structure standpoint, what's somewhat unique is we're never the GP. Our operating partners are the GP. And then our operating partners pay a business that I own in Puerto Rico a consulting fee for helping putting the deal together. And because I'm a sophisticated tax planner, that Puerto Rico company has a 4% corporate tax rate. And the Puerto Rico company is owned by my Roth 401k plan. So all of my promotes and all my sponsor fees, they all get taxed at 4% and go into my Roth 401k plan, never to be taxed again. So then when I take that money in my 401k plan and I go and invest it in private debt or other private real estate, I never pay tax on my profits and I'll take all that money out tax-free in my retirement as well. That is interesting. And you are right. There's a short and a longer version and that's pretty cool. I won't try to delve into that tax structure because I'd be out of my league and you already summarized it, but I am interested in the general partner role a little bit. So you said you are not the general partner. You have operating partners. Did I hear that right? Correct. So our platform's called Invest With Our Family. And what we do through our family office and through my individual relationships is we gather capital that we're going to bring to an operating partner who's identified an asset, diligence the asset, lined up the financing, has the improvement plan, has already decided that they want to make an acquisition. And whether they're going to come up with 5 or 10% of the equity, we're going to bring the other 90 or 95% as a single check. We make the process simpler for that general partner because they only have to deal with us as sophisticated investors being one point of contact. And then we do all the investor relations. We work with our investor base. We send them our quarterly updates. We send them the distributions. Our operating partner just gives us one wire and then we distribute it out. We Mm -hmm. deal with all the K-1s to our individual investors. We deal with all the questions they have that come up over time. And we leave our operating partner to focus on what they do best, which is sourcing, diligencing, acquiring, and managing properties. So obviously, what happens from an economic standpoint 
is that most of our deals, we're doing heavy value add in growth markets. And what we're looking for are opportunities to create infinite returns where our operating partners able to attract high loan to cost bridge financing at reasonable rates. We go in with the equity, they make their improvements. Hopefully within a year to two years, we're able to do a cash out refinancing and return most of the principal to us as investors. And then when we get into the promote, we're going to share that promote together. They're going to receive hundred percent. They're going to pay our Puerto Rican business half of that for the work that we've done to bring the capital and manage the investor base. Got it. Getting high loan to cost bridge loans and trying to get a cash out of all your equity within a year or two is challenging, I imagine. What have been the results of the last couple of deals that have gone full cycle, which it doesn't sound like you take deals full cycle, does it? Because you want the infinite returns, right? Correct. We just refinanced an asset that we acquired in Dallas, a 600-unit multifamily complex. We bought it with a large defeasance. So we took over the existing loan. It was about a $7.5 million penalty if we refinanced. So we got a nice discount when we acquired it. I think we paid $53 million and the building was worth, call it 61 or 62 at the time. But we just basically got the discount for the defeasance fee. And We operated that asset for, I think it was about four years. We generated, let's just say, about a 30% return on our invested capital through dividend distributions of cash flow. And then this year, we were thinking about selling it with COVID. We decided to do a recap. So we recapped it. We got back 170% of our initial investment. So now we're basically doubled our money in five years. We still own the asset. We're going to be able to generate about a 10% return on initial invested capital each year while we continue to own it. And if we were to sell it today, we'd get another, let's say, 150% of our investment. So that's been a, a great investment. Yeah. You know, that, that 200% return, none of that was taxable. The 10% yield that we'll get should be tax protected. So there's really not a huge advantage to go and try and get that other 150% and then incur the cap gains tax. We might as well just keep owning it. How many deals are you currently a part of, you and your group? We've done a total of 35 transactions. I think we've exited maybe nine or 10 of them. So we had an exit in Arkansas. We had a portfolio that we bought early in the cycle. It was a pretty new class A, 300 and something unit building. And we generated a nice 13, 14% IRR on that hold. It was a low risk asset when we bought it. In the front of the cycle, we were buying more A properties. And then as we got later in the cycle, we've done more value add. We had an interesting value add in Decatur, where we actually own about a thousand doors in Decatur, Georgia, right outside Atlanta. We were early there. I would say 2015, we bought a property for 35,000 a door. We put in another 10 or 12 in renovation. And then we recapped it. We got out all of our money, plus a little bit more. We owned it another three or so years. And then we sold it and made 4X our money over the hold. What deals lost the most amount of money, if any? So we haven't had a realized loss yet. We have two shopping centers in our portfolio, both of which are grocery anchored. So the grocery tenants are doing fine, but the other tenants in the complexes are not doing well. One is in Texas, one's in New York, I think. So we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. We also bought an asset in Chicago in 2014. We had a single tenant 
So we were able to buy that building from the bank for a particular reason at the bank's note. We got a good deal on the acquisition price. From a cash flow standpoint, we were going to be able to get back about 60% of our capital before the single tenant would have to renew their lease. And so the strategy was, if this is a massive failure, we'll get back 60% of our money over six years and we'll lose whatever equity we put up. Or if the tenant renews, it's going to be a home run and we'll three to five X our money. And if the tenant does something in between, we'll kind of see how it shakes out. It ends up that tenant renewed two of the three floors. We have a $4 million reserve for tenant improvements and fit out. And it remains to be seen. What's going to happen with that asset? I don't know. We got 60% of our money back already. It's still a good asset in a good neighborhood. It's suburban office, Oak Brook, Illinois. It's a nice affluent suburb right around the corner from high-end mall. Are we going to rent that floor out? My guess is, yeah. At what price? Who knows? Are we going to have to renegotiate with the bank? We'll see. So I think the beauty to me of real estate is that your loss is always limited to your equity, but- It's not going to be 100% of that equity if you're getting distributions from existing tenants and existing cash flow. So you're always, every year that you kind of survive, you're reducing your equity exposure and your potential risk of loss. But your upside in some ways is infinite. So I like the risk reward profile of these assets. As the cycles moved, we've transitioned where we're focused. So for the last three, four years, we haven't bought anything other than value-add workforce housing. And I don't see that changing while interest rates are low. We're going to do a lightning round, but first got to ask you a money question. And then real quick, if you can answer that, and then let's go into lightning round. Based off of your experience, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Figure out what you're good at. So I started buying these two family houses and I was not a good landlord, but I'm a really great aggregator of capital and a great investor relations professional. And so I've found my sweet spot and that enabled me to scale quickly. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Of course. All right. First quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Best ever conference is almost here starting February 18th. We have over 30 of the best ever speakers in commercial real estate. When you sign up, you are placed in a virtual mini mastermind group to network and gain connections from start to finish. And if you're looking to elevate your investing game, this is the place to be. Visit BEC2021.com and use the code INVEST15 to get 15% off. No, what's the best ever way you like to give back to the community? My wife and I like to focus on three causes. It's Jewish causes. We're a Jewish family. And there's this old saying, if Jews don't support Jews, who will? We support education and food security. The most fun experience we had... My son, for his bar mitzvah, instead of having one of those lavish parties, he decided to pack 18,000 meals for our local food pantry. Wow. What is the best ever tool that you use in your business? It could be software. You mentioned the book Traction, so we'll remove that from the set. But what's a tool that you use? My phone never leaves my side. (laughs) It's a blessing and a curse. But having the ability to access information and communicate with people on a real-time basis can't be beat. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? 
Probably the best is to connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook or visit my website, Freedom Family Office or investwithourfamily.com. Noah, I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being on the show talking about the family office business that you are in, how you partner with operators, the structure, and the type of deals that you're focused on. Appreciate you being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thanks so much.